Psalm 150 is our text, the topic, the instruments build and build and build to a crescendo of loud clashing cymbals. The title of our message, I gotta have more cymbal. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we love you and thank you for letting us be here today. A lot of people sick, Lord, not all with COVID, with uh, lots of different things going on this uh, time of year. Uh, We wanna just lift up a quick general prayer. You know who they are. We've been praying for them all week. Lord, we do thank you for the audience at home and appreciate that we do have technology to stay in touch that way. Right now, we want to lock into Psalm 150. Uh, we, we want it to uh, cause us to, to want to sing and worship you because that's what it was written for. Uh, we want to be a people of praise, Lord, not just in song, but in every area of our lives, of course. Guide us through this, Lord. We need your help. We need the Holy Spirit to be our teacher. Uh, to take these words that were written so many centuries ago and make them applicable to our lives without straining them too much. And so just be with us, Lord, as you've promised. We pray in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. Songwriters call it staggered. It's when a song is arranged so that it starts with one vocalist or instrument, then it adds more vocals and instruments gradually. Behind Blue Eyes by The Who is a good example. Starts with a single guitar, Then a single vocalist comes in, then more and more vocals, then the bass, then another guitar. Two minutes and 20 seconds into it, the full band joins. Metallica's Enter Sandman and In the Air Tonight by Phil Collins are staggered songs. If you're much of a classic rock fan, you can probably think of a few songs that start calm, but build and build, and then at a certain point, you gotta crank the dial to full as they bring it. Stairway to Heaven, for example. All right, you're a fan of country music. It was hard for me, but I... uh, (laughs) And you might not think this is country music, but I do. Uh, The first staggered song that came to my mind, The Gambler by the late Kenny Rogers. It opens with some finger picking, then there's the vocals, then there's some kind of a percussion that sounds like a combination of a wooden block and dripping water. I couldn't figure it out. It's like. And just about when it drove me crazy, instruments continue to build after that until at the end, the full band has joined in. So Psalm 150, it's staggered and it builds. It opens with what reads like a vocal solo in verses one and two. In verses three through five, no less than eight instruments are introduced one at a time. And some of those are plural. The last verse is a turn the dial to full volume involving everything that has breath. We'd expect nothing less from the closing psalm. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, your praise is possessive as God's plan for you builds. And number two, your praise is progressive as God's plan for you builds. Let's take a look at verses one and two and see what we mean by possessive. Now, this is gonna sound obvious, but the psalms are songs. We may not have the sheet music, but we must remember that they are songs. In our commitment to teach verse by verse through the Bible, we are driven to exposit the Psalms as we do the historical books or the gospels or the epistles. If we do that with songs, we are cheating ourselves. We have to do more than that. Songs tend to elicit emotions and feelings. There's nothing wrong with being inspired to feel by a psalm. In fact, we should get emotional. 
If Psalm 150 doesn't elicit strong feelings, we're probably not doing it justice. And so verse one, praise the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary, praise him in his mighty firmament. The final five Psalms begin and end with praise the Lord or hallelujah. It's good to be reminded that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. There's going to be a lot of praising in our future. We won't be sitting around playing harps, doing nothing. It's more like everything will be so truly awesome that praising the Lord will be a constant. There's a scene in chapter 5 of the Revelation where it says 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands of angels break out in praise, followed by every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. A lot of scenes of praise there. I... Uh, I don't know if we're a big musical crowd here, you know, if you like musicals but is what I mean by that. I like my favorite story about musicals. I've told it about three times in 35 years, so I feel safe uh, telling it again. But uh, my dad, he liked what uh, was, he used to call shoot 'em up westerns, uh, where just old westerns, cowboy shows, gun smoke, where, you know, fast draw, punch, you know, shoot, shoot in the head kind of places, you know, and stuff. Cimarron Strip, the Big Valley, all of that stuff. And so he got wind that Lee Marvin was going to be on television and with Clint Eastwood in Paint Your Wagon. Man, he was so excited about that. And that was the day in which your television was all the way across the room. It was this, it was, you know, it was in a giant stereo and you'd have no remote. And so we all gathered to watch Paint Your Wagon. And pretty early on, he got the impression that it was a musical because they broke into song and he was so mad. Uh, I, I, I don't know, he had just about broke the television. So, you know, he wasn't a big musical fan. Uh, maybe you're not, but I think you can understand this. And it, it seems like lots of times in heaven, all of a sudden there's just gonna be a breakout music, you know, where, whoa, what's happening now? And you just join in and all praise the Lord, then go about your business and we will have business to go about in heaven. Uh, but praise is a big part of the future, so we should have some sense of it now. And obviously more than just singing, but singing is a big part of praise. Now, in our psalm, the people of God were gathered at his sanctuary, probably the second temple. Around 586 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar's troops destroyed the first temple, which we call Solomon's temple, because it was built by him. Uh, the Jews were held as captives in Babylon for about 70 years. The second temple was built by Zerubbabel and others after the Jews returned from captivity. It is sometimes called Zerubbabel's temple. In New Testament times, Herod was remodeling this temple into the magnificent structure most of us think of today as the temple. It is sometimes referred to as Herod's temple, but Herod's temple is still considered the second temple. So there have been two temples as far as the Jews are concerned. Uh, Solomon's and then the second one, if you're counting the temple we read about in the Great Tribulation, the future temple, that will be the third temple, okay? Just uh, to keep the numbers. Now, the temple in Jerusalem, that was the real estate on the earth that God had prescribed in order to meet with Israel. Concerning the Ark of the Covenant that would be placed in the Holy of Holies in that temple, we read in Exodus, and there I will meet with you and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat from between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony 
about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. I'm sure you've been to a concert of some sort, a music concert. The audience listens excitedly to the performance. If the Psalms have taught us anything, it is that in the sanctuary, the people were not an audience. They were participants. Today in the church age, there is no physical temple. The, uh, the sanctuary has a different meaning. At least two, in fact. Jesus makes his sanctuary in the individual believer. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, we read this. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And so as a Christian, when you are born again, the Holy Spirit enters you, lives within you uh, permanently, uh, you know, it has his indwelling. And, and so that is the sense in which you are, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Jesus also makes his sanctuary among his people gathered together collectively. In 2 Corinthians 6.16, speaking of the gathering of believers, the Apostle Paul said, you collectively are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And so in a spiritual, supernatural, otherworldly sense, uh, when we get together as the church, we are also the temple of the Holy Spirit, the temple, or the temple of God, rather, by the Spirit. We're not an audience when we are gathered as the church. By our very presence, we are expected to be participants. When it comes to worship, Pastor Chuck Smith used to say that we are the choir. Uh, he didn't have a choir, nothing wrong with choirs. We love choirs. Uh, but in a sense, uh, anybody who comes to the church is a member of the choir during the worship as a participant. And so it's not a performance. There are times for performance songs and special songs and Christian concerts and all of those things. But when we gather together as the church, as the temple of the Holy of, of the Spirit, on, uh, as the temple of God by the Spirit on the earth, uh, we are participants. And so we normally say, Corporate worship should not be a performance. The worship leader or team is here to lead us in our singing so that all together we are praising the Lord. Now, if you don't want to sing, that's fine. I'm not even going to rebuke you. That's not the point of this. Uh, we're talking about the general sense that we're all here to worship the Lord through song. Uh, but if you don't uh, want to enter into singing, that's fine. Uh, you can worship the Lord while others sing, and you can spend the time in prayer uh, it's probably not a good idea to keep looking at your watch and wondering when the worship is going to be over uh, so you can get to whatever you really came for uh, or, you know, whatever. And it's, you know, it's funny. I know uh, I'm not busting anybody out, but there are people who actually, not a lot, but every now and then there's people who get here after the worship because they don't care for the worship and they just want to hear the word. And uh, conversely, there are people who uh, come here for the worship and then they used to sneak out during the meet and greet uh, because that's all they really cared about. And so, you know, so uh, I'm just saying the only point I'm making this morning for you to meditate on in your own walk with the Lord is how am I participating uh, since I am not an audience, I am a participant. Praise him in his mighty firmament can be translated, praise him in the heavens. The psalmist's thoughts become elevated beyond life on earth. He became aware that he was standing in the presence of Almighty God in the specific place on earth that God chose, surrounded by 
the universe. Think of it like this. David once sung, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? It was that same awareness that all the universe and the earth in it and the temple on it was created with the sole purpose of God having a relationship with me, with you, with whosoever will believe on him. He created the universe, put the earth in it so that he could make mankind on that earth and have a relationship. Non-believers think it is ignorant and arrogant to suggest that the earth has that much significance in our vast universe. If you've watched any Discovery Channel, History Channel, you know, uh, kind of thing, anytime they talk about the universe, uh, if you're listening, they always mention how because it's so, va so vast, it obviously can't have just to do with us. I mean, we're just a tiny speck of a speck of a speck of dust in the middle of all this vast universe. And so it's beyond arrogant to think that the earth would have any importance. They largely scoff at and immediately dismiss special creation. When you approach Genesis as literal history given to us by God who was there, you see that creation was necessary so that he could make man as his image and walk in a loving relationship with us. Is that arrogant? I say it's romantic. How many songs are there about what you would give to the one you love if only you could? Your song has been covered by many artists. You remember the lyric, I don't have much money, but boy, if I did, I'd buy a big house where we both could live. I know it's not much, it's the best I can do. My gift is my song, and this one's for you. And so that's the sentiment. I'd give you a house, I'd give you the world, I'd give you the universe if I could, I love you that much. But I can't, so I've written you this song. Uh, and it's romantic. In All I Have to Give, the Backstreet Boys saying, I wish I could give the world to you, but love is all I have to give. Not very original, lame lyrics, but you get the idea. I mean, you got to do better than that, really. Well, guess what? God is in a position to give the world to us. His love for us is extravagant. Why wouldn't he create a universe for us? I mean, you envision God saying, hey, if I could create a universe for you, I would. But I just can't, so my gift is my song, and this one's for you. I mean, seriously, that's the idea. Oh, it's arrogant to think. No, it's romantic to think that. And God is the universe maker and the giver. Have you watched It's a Wonderful Life yet this season? You probably have. Uh, trying to convey his love for Mary, George says to her, what is it you want, Mary? What do you want? You want the moon? Just say the word. I'll throw a lasso around and pull it down. Remember? Yeah, thank you. Almost broke into my Rocky there for a minute, but anyway. Well, Mary, what do you want? That's the idea. George, he's a romantic guy. He says, I will lasso the moon for you if I could. The word I'm using to convey all this is possessive. It's a word that can carry a negative connotation, but if you're in love, it doesn't. As a romance word, it's endearing. It suggests a healthy desire to keep and protect the one you love. So verse two, we finally made it to verse two. <laughs> Praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. I'm just gonna show the video to second service, but anyway. <laughs> 
We might be tempted to think of his mighty acts as the parting of the Red Sea for Moses or the day the sun stood still for Joshua, maybe the global flood in the days of Noah. Mighty acts indeed. In the context set by verse 1, his mighty acts would be his redeeming the human race by his plan to come into the world as the God-man to die in our place on the cross. When you think about them, the flood, the Red Sea, halting the sun, all of God's other mighty works were all performed for one purpose, to further his plan to provide the world with the Savior, Jesus Christ. They all had the overall plan in mind, the big picture in mind, so that the people of God could press forward. What a great start to this last psalm. The people of God were in the one place in the entire universe where the presence of God was revealed to them in a mighty way. Wherever we are gathered together collectively, we are that place in the universe where God manifests his presence in mighty ways. And Jesus is possessive of us, so we ought to be possessive of him. We do that by not allowing anyone or anything to distract us from our beloved bridegroom. Let's take about a look at verses 3 through 6 where our praise is progressive. I think it's safe to say that you're a little bit country and I'm a little bit rock and roll. <laughs> musical styles, musical instruments, song selection. Christians are never going to agree. And it doesn't seem Christians want to agree to disagree either. Can we take our cue for corporate worship from the Psalms? Well, even if we wanted to, it would be hard. Biblical Archaeology Review noted the following, and I quote, There are no ancient music notations to inform us on the music arrangement of Psalms. What's more, even though the collection of biblical psalms as we know it from the Hebrew Bible was established quite late, the oldest psalms were likely composed already in the 14th century BC, from which we have no adequate documentation from Israelites themselves. We do not possess depictions of people performing psalms. The Bible does not tell us much about how psalms were originally performed. I think God has wisely not prescribed any single liturgy. It gives us freedom to worship him in new ways with new songs that are more appropriate. I mean, if we knew the arrangement to all the psalms and all the instruments and all the vocals, that's what people would do because they'd say, this is the book of psalms, this is how they worship the Lord, everything else is excluded. It wouldn't be an argument about piano versus guitar. We would be using all these other weird instruments that, that, you know, that are mentioned here. Uh, and a lot of percussion, it seems. Uh, but God says, hey, you know, there's no one way of approaching me through music. We can say from Psalm 50, if we want to use that as a measure, that just about every instrument available was employed. Uh, it just builds and builds. So verse three, praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with the lute and harp. Praise him with the timbrel and dance. Praise him with stringed instruments and flutes. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with clashing cymbals. Now, before we move on, I should say something about praise him with dance because that's what you're all waiting for. <laughs> so let's go. Every few years, dance gets reintroduced into worship at a church, usually a mega church or an influential church. It's mostly what you'd call interpretive dance. It's a soloist or a troupe praising God through their movements. Now, this Hebrew word for dance 
The one used here in Psalm 150 is makol, M-A-C-H-O-L. Since it's a Hebrew word in a Jewish context, let's let a Jewish resource explain it to us. So here's a quote. The Bible doesn't tell us what their dancing looked like exactly, but early Jewish literature presented the makol as a circle dance. The 16th century Jewish sage known as the Maharal of Prague, I'm sure you're familiar with him, it sounds like a Johnny Carson routine. <laughs> Oy vey. What happened today? I don't know. Uh, the Maharal of Prague explains that in a circle, every person faces God, who is in the center, equally and divinely connected to him from all sides. All Jewish festivications, such as weddings and bar mitzvahs, and many of the Jewish holidays, you will see Jews cheerfully, uh, cheerfully dancing in circles with arms tightly locked as brothers. So if you want to dance at church, lock and loop. <laughs> We're going to set aside Sunday mornings before the kids get out the Gaga pit. You can rename it the Makol pit. And you can just all get in there and lock arms and dance around in a big circle, and you will be Old Testament dancing. Uh, so that's great. All right? So there. In your, uh, you know, it used to be when you could go to work and see other people, uh, you could talk tomorrow to people about how we have given permission for the believers to dance at church. Uh, they just have to do it in the Gaga pit. Uh, which nobody knows what gaga means anyway. It's, it sounds like a dance thing. You know, we're going to gaga in the pit. Uh, but uh, I, nothing wrong with a good circle dance, right? Not the chicken dance, a circle dance. You want to be biblical, go that way. Now, I don't think the list of instruments in Psalm 150 was meant to be exclusive. We make that mistake sometimes. Oh, these are the characteristics. These are the nine gifts of the Spirit. These are the instruments. He's saying, grab an instrument, a stringed instrument, a wind instrument, a percussion instrument, and praise the Lord. Any and all instruments could be used in praising the Lord in song. Stringed, wind, percussion, properly arranged to bring attention to the Lord, use them. Every once in a while when we were a young church, and I survived somehow, I did, but somebody, and nobody here, I've already surveyed you guys, but um, somebody would come and say, hey, I've uh, got a bunch of prospective musicians. Can we just sit in the front row and play along while the worship team plays? No. Well, why not? It's lame. Well, no, what do you mean it's lame? We just, we all want to worship the Lord. I felt like saying, if I have to explain this to you, maybe you don't understand. I mean, you know, so anyway. So, you know, it isn't just a cacophony of instruments, everybody. You know, it's like the beginning of a symphony. Doesn't it drive you crazy? Everybody's tuning and doing that. And then what? Then they get into whatever they're going to play. You didn't pay 50 bucks to hear them tune, right? Who's this first chair violin? You know, he breaks into the devil down in Georgia while you're listening to... Well, you paid good money for these guys to, to follow their conductor, and that's the idea. If um, one of our guiding principles here at Calvary Hanford is to recognize gifts and abilities of the believers who have decided to lock arms with us, so to speak. With regards to those who lead us as the choir, if there were no guitars here, but there were piano players, then we'd have piano-led worship because that's God's gifting to us. This is a good principle for churches to follow. There are some slots that need to be filled, of course, you know, but generally speaking, 
Uh, rather than say, we want to do this, who can we find to do it? You find who's coming and say, what can we do to aid them in their ministry? And so God brings a certain group of people together. And when you come to Calvary Hanford and call this your church home, you have certain gifts and abilities uh, that are available to us. And uh, if, if your talent is playing the flute, then we don't want you to play the clarinet, if you understand what I'm, you know, we're not gonna sit around saying, well, I want, Pastor Gene wants the oboe. And uh, you can play clarinet and flute, but we don't care about you. I mean, we try and work everybody in, not just in worship, but in all areas. We want to uh, equip people for the work of the ministry. Uh, and, and, and that has to do with what God is already doing in your life. I think sometimes when churches have a vision, you know, it's like we, we're going to do this and everybody's going to get on board. We don't really care what your gifts are because this is our vision. Our vision is to uh, promote ministry here and outside by equipping the saints in a way that God has equipped them. And so that's our basic philosophy. I guess if there were no musicians at all, we'd sing a cappella. And, you know, I mean, we, we do what we do. We do have some bedrock ideas about style. We prefer choruses over hymns. It's just who we are. We're a result of the revival historians called the Jesus Movement. One of the questions we asked and answered back then was, why should the devil have all the good music? <laughs> oh, rest in peace, Larry Norman. We like order rather than chaos, so we don't open up Sunday mornings to the congregation sharing their individual instruments or even their spiritual gifts uh, because we have uh, other times for that. So those are just a couple of things. Now, we can't be sure that this psalm was staggered, starting with vocals, then adding instruments one at a time, then more instruments crescendoing with loud cymbals and clanging cymbals. I'd like to think so. I'd like to think there was some cowbell in here too. But anyway, verse six, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I read somewhere this week, every breath is the gift of God and praise is the worthy response we should make for that gift. Derek Kidner noted that the literal phrase here is let all breath praise the Lord. Let all breath praise the Lord. Then he commented, his glory fills the universe. His praise must do no less. John Trapp wrote, we have all as much reason to praise God as we have need to draw breath. G. Campbell Morgan said, the one condition of praise is the possession of breath. That is to say, life received from him must return to praise in him. Those of you who make the excuse, valid excuse, it seems, that you can't carry a bucket in a tune, uh, we're going to change the mother's room into a room for you people, but no, I'm just, just kidding. <laughs> but do you have breath? That's the question that should be asked. And if the answer is yes, then, then you're able to praise the Lord. And again, we're not, you know, we don't monitor who's singing and who isn't. We don't have electric shock in the chairs, you know, and so 17B isn't singing. <laughs> now he is. Uh, you know, we're not doing that. We're trusting you to be in a, to worship the Lord. Uh, but uh, just know that you're a participant. Albert Barnes said, let a breathing universe combine in one solemn service of praise. He was thinking ahead to eternity when the universe will have been redeemed and restored by God's plan for it. Praise will be the very air that we breathe. There's a lyric in a song by Chicago that captures a sense of what our praising God on earth is like now. They sing only the beginning 
of what I want to feel forever. They're not talking about love for God, but we are. So what do I mean your praise is progressive? Well, simply put, you grow in praise as you make progress along God's path for your life. Every up, every down, all that is in between can further your awe at the wonder of his love for you. It can elicit greater and greater praise. Every morning you awake, God's mercies are yours to experience in new ways. Every blessing, every buffeting takes you deeper into his love for you. You don't just make progress on your path, you make progress in knowing Jesus. When I was a young believer, Pastor Don McClure quoted Psalm 103, verse 7, where it says, God made known his ways to Moses, his deeds or his works to the people of Israel. He pointed out that Israel knew of God through his mighty works, but Moses knew the ways of God. He knew the heart of God. He knew the purposes of God. He understood God's character. He had progressed. He could know what God would say about something, what God would do, how God would handle something because he understood God's heart. If you want to know the ways and not just the works of God, start by embracing grace. If you're going to err, err on the side of grace. Read the Bible with grace in mind, not law. Prefer the spirit of the law, not the letter of it. Here's a gauge. In your Christian walk and in ministering to others, do you emphasize what you or they must do for God or do you emphasize what God has done for them and for you? What's your perspective? And you can go, it's, it's, a, it's really a choice. Um, you can teach the Bible from a perspective of God's done a lot for you, but what are you going to do for God? These things are your responsibilities. I'm not saying there aren't responsibilities, that there's no dis- discipline or anything like that. Uh, but it comes, eventually it comes across as legalistic, as harsh. And it's, it's easy to preach that way because everybody's blowing it, right, all the time. And, and so you get an immediate response. And I go, oh, okay, but people are hanging their head down. It's better to think about what God has done for you. You want to respond to that love, not his law. And he loves you so much, Jesus died for you on the cross. I mean, some of us are moved by television shows that, you know, oh, it's so sad the way he died. Oh, but Jesus died for you on the cross, rose from the dead to give you new life. We want to emphasize what the Lord has done for you because you can't outgive him. And you'll be motivated to, to serve him and to give to him and to, you know, all those kinds of things. We don't talk about money very much here uh, because, first of all, it's embarrassing. I hate to talk about money, but we don't talk about money. And what I mean by money is you giving and how much need we have uh, because that's between you and the Lord. That has to do with a love relationship between you and the Lord. I could actually, I couldn't, but we could get people up here that could coerce giving. There are organizations that do that. They, they write us all the time and they say, if we come to your church, we can guarantee a, an increase in 20% of your tithe. And uh, it's terrible when churches do that. We want you to give because God moved on your heart to give because you love the Lord. And that's between you and him. And so and that's what we're talking about. Emphasize what God has done, not what you must do. Thus ends the book of Psalms. Alexander McLaren said, Psalm 150 is more than an artistic close to the Psalter. It is a prophecy of the last result of the devout life 
and in its unclouded sunniness, as well as its universality, it proclaims the certain end of the weary years for the individual and for the world. We sing a song here, Golden City. One of its lyrics is, soon your trials will be over, offered up by mercy's hand, a better view than where you're standing, a doorway to another land. F.B. Meyer said this, your life may resemble the Psalter in its varying moods, its light and shadow, its sob and smile, but it will end with hallelujahs, if only you will keep true to the will and the way and the work of the Most Holy.